This episode is brought to you by Ben to Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. Learn more at bentotable.com. That's B-E-N-T-O-T-A-B-L-E.com. And when you use code HRN for a new subscription, you get $20 off and HRN gets $10. This week on Meet and 3, we look at how we've adapted to a new normal during the pandemic. From the business of restauranteering and the new habits of composters, to learning from the past to prepare for the future, we're exploring what came before and what lies ahead. People in charge of the collections and the acquisitions looked at me and were like, what the hell are you trying to sell me cookery for? These kids are so young and we're teaching them that it's okay to throw out all this food and we have to figure out a way to educate these students to make them, you know, lifelong environmentalists. Tune in to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts for the latest stories in the world of food. Nastasia, what's hot, Mikey? I think when it's like at Heritage where they have to jumpstart. where you accidentally say something live on the air that you don't mean to, which technically we're all doing right now. Yeah. All right, here we go. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from the Lower East Side, Nastasia the Hammer Lopez from Stamford, Connecticut. John from Nahul from uh, the Murray Hill, uh, Matt from his Brooklyn booth, Boothette, and today's special guest, Adam Leonti. Where are you hanging out, Adam? Upper West Side. Upper West Side. Oh yeah, you live in the Upper West Side. Yeah. Pretty, pretty and you work down, and you, and you work down in the in the so that's kind of a crap commute, am I right? I just ride my bike, so I don't have to take the train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So bad. How long is how long is that bike? Is that a 30, 35 minute ride? What is it? A little less, like twenty five, probably. I like that. I like yeah. a. I, I love a bike ride. I don't have my bike, my real bike anymore. Now I am a city bike guy. So are you like I used to be, where you hate locking your bike, so it's just it goes from inside to inside, and you never lock it anywhere. That's exactly how I do it. It goes inside yeah. the restaurant or inside my house, and that's it. Yeah, my old chain used to weigh as much as my bike, and so I just never carried it around with me, which is why actually City Bike makes it kind of more convenient for running errands where I'm not allowed to bring my bike in. For those of you that don't know, have never ridden a bike in New York City, there's all of these buildings with all these crazy anti-bike policies, and when you ride your... Stas, you remember this when you had the folding bike? Yep. Yeah, yeah. and so what you do is, is like you ride up to the door, and then you're like... Because <sighs> you know you're about to have an argument with this fool, you know what I mean, at the front of the building, and then you're, you know, you get all, you get all bent. Stas, how many arguments did, did the both of us get into with people about our bikes? Oh, so many. But Dave, what's worse on a city bike? A uh, seat that keeps falling or sticky handles? Which one would you rather? But I can only have one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I can't get both the falling no. seat and the sticky hand. But see, I think actually, like, the falling seat is maybe worse. Like I, the slow falling seat on like a relatively <laughs> long ride where you're like, it's going to hold, it's going to freaking hold, it's going to hold. <laughs> and then like, and then you're like, you're going, you're going, you're, you're going. And then like all of a sudden you're like, I'm, I'm that old man who has the poorly <laughs> adjusted seat with my knees in my chest. What the hell? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, cause I, I hate those dudes. Like, <laughs> yeah. 
You know what I mean? Whenever I see someone and their knees, their legs never go almost straight as it, like, look around people. Like, if you don't know how to adjust a bike seat, look, like, look it up on the internets and then look around you and so many people have their seats too low. Guys, back me up yeah, on this. I thought you were gonna say look around you for examples. I was like, nah, man, so many people are wrong. <laughs> yeah, dude, everyone, dude, everyone, not everyone, a lot of people have their seats too low and you're just giving up power. That's why, and you know, it's probably, we should, we need to come up with a non-offensive term for, for granny gear. Cause I know some grannies that can kick most people's behinds, but That's true. You, you see these people in, 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 these, in these gears where they're, 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 they're pedaling like a mile a minute and going one mile an hour and you could get the extra power and spend less of your own energy if you just adjusted your bike seat right. Nastasia, what's my other big gripe? Um, Come on, for the, for the win. Oh, no helmet, fixie, uh, earphones in. Oh, I, I hate that. Any, any combination of not paying attention while you're on the streets of New York like gets me real bent. Now, underinflated tires. I hate, uh, I hate seeing people with underinflated tires. I hate it. You know what I mean? I mean, look, it's on them. It's for them. But like, why are they wasting their energy? Hey, what do you guys think? You guys with me on the underinflated tire thing? 120 PSI. It's the only way to roll. Man, although I used to go, well, whatever, it's not, this is not biking, this is not biking issues. I wish we could get the bike snob on though and just ha- like, is the bike snob still have a, a blog or is that, is that over years ago? I don't know. What was the, what was the bike snob? The bike snob was a, like a mystery, a mystery New York City biker who just went on, I don't remember whether it was a blog or a Twitter account and they would just post pictures and vitriol and hate. Just pictures, vitriol, and hate. <laughs> hey, Nastasia, do you remember the time that you, uh, you remember the time that you were biking home from the radio show? And like, for those of you that don't know, like regardless of what Neil Diamond says, Brooklyn roads are the worst, are the worst. It's a good Neil Diamond song, but the actual Brooklyn roads are terrible. So we used to have to ride up Bushwick, which was just one big concrete mogul after the next because the concrete trucks would drop their concrete and aggregate on the, right where the bikes were supposed to drive. And then remember we would turn on, on, on uh, whatever that is, Grand, and we would go up towards the bridge and there was that life-ending pothole that you took and it, <laughs> and it flipped your bike. You remember that? Yeah. What it sucked is it was right in the bike lane. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pothole in how how do you even get a pothole in a bike lane because potholes are supposed to be caused by big trucks with their tires you know what i'm saying like how do you even get how do you even get a pothole in the bike lane i'll be right there and as they painted the bike lane, that person just laughed (laughs) (laughs) that's gonna really that's gonna screw somebody up yeah yeah you think like they came out with a jackhammer in the in the middle of the night we're like speaking of middle of the night in New York City over the past couple of nights, and we'll get to cooking in a minute, people. Over the past couple of nights in New York City, people have been setting off fireworks in all of these neighborhoods. Where are all these fireworks coming from? I'm not against it. I love fireworks. But, like, what, what is this all about? Jersey, Jersey opened up, like, uh, their mar- they, re- they, they made their market less restrictive, basically. Wait, so... Dave, I saw on some of your bartenders, like, Instagram stories that it's, like, the police that are creating bomb scares for people late at night. Well, I mean, I've heard that. I've, I've heard that. However, like, 
I just like I don't think anyone's a. F- I mean, like I don't know. Maybe I don't know. It doesn't sound frightening. They're doing it in my neighborhood, no. and I'm, it doesn't sound frightening to me. I'm like someone is setting off fireworks. The very first one you hear, you're like, is that a gunshot? But then no one has that many bullets. Nobody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, and the last couple nights, I've had a perfect view of them from my apartment. It's like I live at an amusement park. Oh, man. I can't see them. They're setting them uh, in my neighborhood. They're setting them off uh, on a park that I don't have a direct view of, which is kind of depressing. But wait, so you're telling me I can buy real fireworks in New Jersey now? Mortars, the whole nine? Yeah. I mean, I don't know exactly what they did, but there were two states that were close by that have like loosened up the rules. And that's basically the supply side reason for why this is happening. Oh, well, see, the, the, the way that Nastasi and I have had to run our lives is like, are we going to New Hampshire or are we going to Pennsylvania? Those are the two choices. <laughs> so, you know, Jersey, you know, I, I grew up there. I'm going to take back anything negative I've said if you've allowed mortars, like real fireworks. The weird thing is New Hampshire, the live free or die state, you can have the full size or, as, you know, as big as is federally allowed mortars. For those of you that are, a mortar is, I mean, aside from military, a fireworks mortar is a, a charge where they set off a launch charge, but as soon as it leaves the tube, it's no longer powered. It works like a bullet. It's ballistic, right? Now, those are legal in New Hampshire, but nothing that has power once it leaves the ground is legal in New Hampshire. So you can have this giant mortar that you could you know, blow your entire face off with. Fine, but you can't have bottle rockets in New Hampshire. How dumb is that? Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because I, I remember my brother talking about going to Tennessee because, like, Tennessee was the closest state where there were basically just no rules. <laughs> yeah, but Pennsylvania, as far as I can tell, Pennsylvania is open for, for business and fireworks. Hey, Stas, remember when we went to Wisconsin and we landed and we realized – this is the problem. When people – when, when people like – I understand that why we shouldn't have fireworks in New York City. I'm not – come on. I'm semi-reasonable here. But it's like as soon as Nastasi and I landed, we looked it up and Nastasia's like, fireworks are legal here. We're going. And so we went and we bought – how many fireworks did we buy, Nastasia? she gone? Where'd she go? Oh, I'm here. Uh, so many. Yeah. And then we set them off in the middle of Madison, Wisconsin, which was not a good idea. I think we really <laughs> ticked off our hosts – we went right in between where the like where, where the two <laughs> lakes are, whatever the two lakes are named in Madison, and we set off this like big fire <laughs> show, and everyone was like, "What are you stupid?" And we're like, "Yeah, pretty much. They're legal here." And then that was it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was good news. All right, all right. So let's get to. Uh, by the way, anything uh, anything to report over the last week, food wise? You do. I do, but we're not talking about me yet. I will talk about my stuff in a second. But you guys have anything? No. Nothing. And then, all right. Well, you know, for those of you that listened last week, uh, last week was my 25th uh, wedding anniversary. And so because, I, you know, we couldn't have a party and also, you know, Jen, my wife, couldn't have a 50th birthday party, I was like, I wanted to make a nice meal. Although, as Nastasia pointed out, making a nice meal is not the same thing as doing something. Am I right? That is true. Because it's more for you, too. Because what, you made like some special bread you were super excited about, which was, I believe, Jen's dream for her 25th anniversary. Wow. Wow, that's so mean. (laughs) So mean. So mean to me. I've been baking a lot of bread, which we're going to get to uh, in a minute. I'm trying to remember what bread. I I did make bread for that night, but I can't remember which one of the loaves uh, I did. That might have been... 
You remember is the one that Jen specially requested from you. Yeah. She's like, please, please make this one. She's like, I'm dying for the red fife, Dave. Can you give me the red fife? Yeah. Can you give um, me the red fife? Because you haven't yet baked with the red fife that you've milled, so I'm so excited for it. That's what no. She actually she asked for uh, steaks. So I went to um I went to Japan Premium Beef. You know that shop? There's one in Brooklyn now, but there's one in uh you know in soho and they're open now you know social distancing rules and whatnot but you can go in and get your get your uh your wagyu on so i i got some a5 uh mizuyaki uh i got a, a filet now listen for those of you that hate on filet mignon right you're hating on it why why are you hating on it because it doesn't have a lot of fat and right it's relatively neutral but in this kind of meat dude it's a big fat block an a5 like a5 fillets take you know is an amazing texture. And Jen, Nastas, even though I'm not a filet guy, Jen likes the filet. So I got a filet, not a bad guy, right? Yep. Yeah, you're like, yeah, bad guy. And then I also got uh, a piece of the sirloin cap. You know how they chop it into that kind of square, like that's that kind of rectangle, like flat thing. And then some pre-sliced short ribs that they intended for you to flat grill. I took the short rib pieces, I cooked them at 54 or five Celsius for about 20 hours chilled them, refrigerated them uh, so that I could sear them fresh and have them be tender. I then did the, the sirloin cap at uh, 54.5 for an hour, dropped it to 52 for an additional uh, four and a half hours. I then did the filet at 52 for an hour, dropped everything to 50, pulled out, seared, served, and I did, uh, to serve with it, uh, Jen requested Brussels sprouts because that's her favorite vegetable. I also got me some fiddleheads and did the blanch. Why does the blanch water on fiddleheads turn so disgusting? Do any of you guys have any ideas? Never blanched fiddleheads, I don't know. Adam, you ever blanched fiddleheads? I have, it gets pretty gross. Yeah, but it, why? How? Why does it get so gross? What do you mean? Well, first of all, it smells bad. No, nah, it looks crazy, disgusting. Like, like blanch water. Like, like sometimes it'll really, yeah, bland, gross. Like, like, like dark, like crazy. And I know that, like, look, fiddleheads. For those of you that don't have fiddleheads, some people, I guess, call them crosiers, but I've never met anyone who calls them crosiers. They're called fiddleheads, you know. Uh, and they're, they're baby ferns. They come up and they're, so if you've ever seen a fern come up, it comes up and it looks like the top of a, of a violin, fiddlehead. And, uh, if you get the wrong ones, they're mildly poisonous, right? And, um, they don't raise them, right, Adam? They're all wild. All wild. Crafted. Yeah, all wild. And so, uh, and they were big in the seventies, went back out, came back out, back out. They come in and out, they come in and out. Um, and, uh. They're all semi, because like ferns like aren't really designed for humans to eat them. So they're all kind of semi not good for you until you blanch the stuff out of it. Would you say it's accurate, Adam? Absolutely. Yeah. But so you blanch them and also you have to buy them fresh. They, they get really crappy fast. You know how like a, you know how a bag of herbs starts turning crappy and black and slimy and nasty? Fiddleheads do that real quick. So you don't want to have them sitting around. Would you agree with this, Adam? Agree. Yeah, it's because they have all of the pre-leaves, which are leaves, and they're packed up, right? So if they don't unfurl, they tend to rot really quickly. Anyways, I don't know why, but the blanching water turns disgusting, and then you got to, like, you got to blanch them. Are you a believer, by the way, Adam, in the, in the uh, ice water after the blanch? I'm a believer in it. Big time. And I like to salt the ice water and the blanching water. Both water is salted. Mm-hmm. What's up, Fancy McFancy? <laughs> What's up? I like the blanching the, the ice water. That's some strength right there. Yeah. But uh, for those of you that don't know, 
uh, I know modernist cuisine said something about how like cold water does it. That, no, listen, on a small vegetable, right? But like you, you take it until you take it under the limit. Don't take it to the limit this time. Take it under the limit. Pull it real fast. You want to wrap it. This is one of those things where old school I think is right. Rapid boil, very salty water, and then you shock it in the ice water to stop the cooling. And that's the only way I know to have the color not turn gross. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Or to overcook it. Anyway, then quick saute it out. And then I served them kind of cool. You know what I didn't buy that they sell at Japan Premium Beef? They sold, there was, uh, I'm supposed to not spend that much money. And they were selling, you ever use the Kampot pepper? Any of you guys ever use the Kampot black pepper? Never. No. It's apparently the world's fanciest, like, Cambodian pepper. And it was there, and I passed, and the minute I got out, I was like, I regret it. <laughs> I regret not buying that pepper. How much was it? I don't know. It was a lot. It was like $14, and I was already spending so much more than I was supposed to spend on the beef that I was like, I mean, you know what the thing where you're there, and you know that you're going to regret it? And you, yet you don't do it anyway and you get out. And now I've been looking on the internet for like the best deal on Kampot pepper. But I know that if I had bought it there, I know I would have, it would have been fresh because they only carry really good stuff there. And then if I order on Amazon, like some idiots probably had in an unair conditioned warehouse for like a year and a half waiting to push Kampot pepper on somebody. And so it's just some, some garbage in a warehouse. You know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. Uh, the minute, but when I was on the bike, I had the mask on, I had the meat, everything on my back. I wasn't going to go back and be like, mm, some camp hot pepper. You know what I mean? $14, Dave. I mean, come on. I believe if you're going to sink, you might as well drown. I agree, Adam, completely. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> I'm going to use that phrase, Adam, if you don't mind. If you're going to sink. All yours. Oh. And then I did some baking. So uh, I made for the first time because Booker has been making cake. So Booker, that happened in the last week, right, Nastasia? Booker brought you your cake or was that two weeks ago? No, that was last week, yeah. yeah see, something happened. Like Nastasia asked for her patriotic red, white, and blue sprinkle cake. And then Booker brought it. But what did he do? He smashed it. <laughs> <laughs> first of all, Wait, oh, did, did we, did we talk, we talked about the sugar explosion last week, right? Yeah. yeah, so maybe you already had the cake. So the sugar explosion happened. He had not enough icing, but he did a decent job anyway. And then he just, the cake was taller than the carrier. So he just like, and smashed the, the carrier into the cake and was like, you know what? To hell with it. To hell with it. And then he got here. He, you know, he wants to sit in the back of the car and he just flings, flings the cake into the back seat. Like it does like, you know, a 360 in the air and then lands on the, on the other seat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyways, so I haven't been baking uh, sweets because Booker's been, you know, interested in making cakes. But for the oh, but I must say, Dave, I had people over on Saturday and they thought it was a milk bar cake. So. Oh. oh, yeah. Hey, did you um, did you do the uh, Angela Gavotte's uh, goldenrod pastry technique and f slice and then freeze it? No, I should. Yeah, come on, man. Good idea. Yeah. Because cake, the problem with, like, even, you know, how are you going to eat a whole cake? It's just a lot. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, and it, it, there's nothing worse than eating that cake, like, right, like, there's that line where it's starting to go a little bit hard. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But it's not, yeah. it's not hard yet, but it's, like, right, don't you, don't you hate that? I, I do. I want it to be, yeah. Yeah. 
song. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so I took Frederick wheat, which is my is my favorite standard soft wheat. How what do you, Adam? What do you think of the Frederick? It's great, great flavor. Like you said, soft wheat, which is really good for cakes and pastries. Yeah, so that's my standard biscuit. That's my standard. Um, that's my standard. Uh, I made the pie crust with it, and it's uh, it's also my Liège waffle. Yeah, I know brioche is supposed to have a harder a flour, but um, I I use it for my uh, Liège brioche because I don't need a lot of rise out of out of a waffle. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, what do you use for brioche? What do you like to use for brioche? Um, I've been doing a combination of a, a couple things. I've been using uh, durum wheat to make it a little bit extra golden, so like 20% durum. And then I'll do something um, with a good amount of protein to give it some strength, so either like a red fife or um, redeemer or something like that. So you're going for a harder, you're going more traditional, like a harder thing, but you're trying to make actual brioche that rises up, I guess, right? Yeah, and I'll push the butter up to 85%, so I kind of need some of that protein in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, speaking of protein, uh, I'll get back to the pie in a minute, but uh, and what we'll talk, should we talk wheat later? I, I finally got some uh, Sonoran white, which I know is one of your favorite. You want to talk about that later in the, later in the program? You're, you drive, wherever, wherever you want to talk about. Well, so... All right, so, uh, let's do the pie first. So I had Frederick wheat, and I made the first recipe. You need to go to Pie Marshes on, find that thing online. I'm so glad I got a copy of that book. Monroe Boston Strauss wrote this thing before World War II and did one reprint afterwards. And this is the, this pie book, which was brought to the attention of the modern world by Shirley Corriher, who we're going to have do a classic in the field at some point. Uh, you you read, her, uh, read her stuff, Adam? You like her work? Yeah, she did a talk once at Fonte's in Philadelphia, and she's incredible. Yeah, right? And she's still going. She's still writing a book, I think, right now. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, for real. Um, and anyway, so uh, he came up with a bunch of awesome techniques and recipes, some of which you've heard of, the chiffon pie. But then other ones, that literally is his invent. He invented the chiffon pie, believe it or not. Uh but he had this recipe for a dried apricot pie and a graham cracker crust. And there are three things in this that are genius. First of all, he takes a standard pie crust and his pie crust recipe is on point, right? Very on point, awesome. He does a full blend in. So none of these like coarse pebbly crap. He's talking fully blend in the freaking fat into the flour, fully blended in. He's like, cause he tells you how to make like a, what he calls a long, a long flake, which is kind of what you would think of as an American flaky pie crust. He's like, but the average person actually really just wants it to break under the fork nicely and not be really tough. And so he's like, just fully incorporate the, the fat, which I thought was an interesting, was an interesting uh, point. What do you think about that, Adam? Yeah, kind of like, are you talking about like a frisage style, like really push it onto the like stone or anything and like really, really push in the butter hard into the flour. That's, yeah, push it in hard. So it's yeah. like almost bisquicky looking, like that's, hard. You that's know what I mean? Do it. Yeah. And so I was like, dang. All right. So, and so he's like, in a way, like pretty modern in the 30s when he's, when he's writing. So then uh, you add, you know, you add it, the, um, the, the water, you get it all, you get it all done. And he has a lot of interesting things to say about hydration in pie doughs. Anyway, and about what wheat. He calls out, he doesn't call out flowers. He calls out soft wheat flour, which is, I thought, cool. He calls that a soft white, uh, white wheat flour. And uh, so then he, this is a genius thing. So he takes the pie crust 
Then he smashes up, makes graham crackers, and then he dusts his, his board in graham crackers and then rolls it out in graham crackers. And you can either do graham cracker on one side or graham cracker on, on both. So you have real pie crust with graham crackers rolled in. How sick is that, Adam? That's pretty sick. Right, and then get this. He takes the pie pan and he turns it upside down and he blind bakes it upside down on the, on the pie pan, which by the way, makes forming the edge freaking trivial because you can just cut around the pie pan, right, to get rid of the, to get rid of the extra. And then it doesn't puff up or anything. It just bakes perfectly upside down on the pie pan. And then as it, after you cool it a little bit, you invert it into another pie pan. It, because it shrinks as it cools, it fits in the other pie pan when you flip it and you have a perfect blind baked thing without any freaking weights, without any docking, Without oh, using brilliant. Yeah, freaking genius, right? And so then here's the, here's the filling he does. It's, he does a dried apricot pie. So he takes dried apricots. I used uh, California Blenheims because they're my favorite. Soaked them in water, hot water overnight. Soak it overnight, blend it. He passes it through a tammy, which of course I don't need to do because I have a Vita prep. He didn't have a Vita prep, right? So I, I blend the heck out of it. Then you combine that with sugar, you hold some back. And you, get your, you make a cornstarch slurry with some of the apricot paste, and then you heat the rest of it up almost to the boil with some sugar. Whip egg whites, some sugar to stabilize it. Then you dump the cornstarch, bring it up to the boil, wait till the cornstarch clears out, fold it into the egg white mixture, then into the pie, into the pie crust. And that's his apricot whip, and it is completely stable and delicious. And it freezes really well. That, like, that kind of like uh, heat set meringue with cornstarch, the texture of that when it's frozen is sick. So I'm gonna go ahead and say that you, uh, our boy Monroe Boston Strauss, definitely worth reading. Someone should reach that sucker. Amazing. Yeah, it's good stuff, right? Uh, Adam, I'm gonna need some help from you here because the name of the one that I used to use is out of my head. Ready? Uh, Angelina uh, Baltazar wrote in via Instagram a couple of weeks ago. I need some uh, help with questions on blast chillers. Do you have any experience with them? Yes. Uh, any ideas which manufacturers are best? And the name of it just went out of my head, the one that everyone uses, the overpriced European brand. What is it? Do you remember, Adam? Oh, God, no. I, I don't. Do you know what I'm talking about, though? Actually, it's like, yeah. I can see the image of their logo. I've used them. I've worked with them. Nastasi, do you remember? Yeah. Uh, I can look through our email because I feel like we had someone request one. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's the one that ra Rationale partners with them. They're way overpriced, but they're so awesome. And I've also not used Electrolux, Electro is it? No, I've used Electrolux, and so Electrolux. So one of the things when you're getting a blast chiller is you got to ask yourself what you're going to do with it most often. So uh, a lot of people invest in the in the combi. Do you know John? Which one I'm talking about? No, I, I've never used a blast chiller. The, the 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 combination combi oven blast chiller. And so what Electrolux used to claim was that they sized their blast chillers to fit their combi ovens because the, it, the important thing in a blast chiller is the load size that fits into it. So you want your kind of oven and your blast chiller to, to match because it costs a lot of money. Blast freezers cost a lot of money. And if you have one that's too big, that's going to take a lot of energy and it's going to take up a lot of space. But if you have it too small, then you can't chill your stuff down in time. Then, then kind of what's the point? But if your question is, do I, it, do I want a blast chiller? Answer is... Oh yeah, blast chillers are freaking amazing, right? Because they chill things down 
I mean, you would not believe how much faster they chill things down than regular things. So we used to use them to um, speed set our, uh, uh, like if you have Paco Jet containers, we used to speed set our Paco containers in them. We would speed cool stuff down. We par freeze stuff before grinding in our blast chillers because the cool thing about blast chillers is they don't have to freeze. They can do a super fast hard chill as well. And they can, they, they can also freeze uh, a lot of times based on probes so they can drop stuff down just where you want it. And they can handle immense amounts of vapor. So like if you, if you want to get French fries down really quickly, boom, you can put them in. Or for instance, bread, Adam, tr- true or false, the faster you freeze bread, the less stale it's going to be when you thaw it out. Very true. Yeah. So you blast freezing on bread that you're going to freeze. Or if, if you, I mean, you, you know, if, if you're one of these people who does par bake situations, like blast freezing is going to be a lot better on par frozen stuff. But I can't remember the name of it. They're all relatively overpriced, but they're all amazing once you have them. Irinox, that's the name of it. It just came to me. Irinox. What do you say? I just said that. Oh, I didn't hear you. I couldn't hear you because of the way Zoom works. Anyway, mm. well, there you, you beat me to it. Yeah, Irinox makes good products. They're just really expensive. You know, I think they're all really expensive, though. Adam, do you ever did you ever any of the restaurants have one that you really liked? Um, I think we had the Electrolux uh, when I was working in Italy because they're made in Italy. Those were probably yeah. like twelve thousand euro, pretty yeah. pretty pricey. But we use it like cooking in reverse. Everything was timed as if you were baking it. It was kind of crazy because we would do macaroons in the blast chiller um, just to keep the vapor up, you know, keep the water off of them. So. Yeah, no, I love it, but who's got the money? You know what I mean? And the, and, and the power. They take a lot of power. But God, I love them. You know what? The one thing I remember, we used to use the Electrolux, and this was, I don't know, 10 years ago. Estasi used to go down and use it with me. Do you remember us sitting there, like pushing the button? And the problem with it was, it like, if you're impatient like I am, like you push two buttons, but you have to wait for it to go through its cycle because it, to protect its compressor, like it had that program. And so we, mm-hmm. uh, we would sit there and go, duh, 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 duh. remember this? Yes. <laughs> and you used to sit there like, like, I, depending on what mood you were in, either laughing at me or shaking your head in disgust, depending. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good, good, good times, good times. But anyway, I love it. Uh, all right. Uh, uh, Fabrizio wrote in uh, via Instagram as well. I hope everything's okay. Wondering if you found any source of Kamu Kamu in the United States. Unfortunately, in the UK, it is all powder or capsules. Thanks in advance for your help. No. No, Fabrizio, I did not. Camo Camo is a, a delicious, uh, unfortunately, what they call a super fruit from South America. And because it's a super fruit, people do all kinds of terrible things to it other than preserve its awesome uh, flavor quality. So I've only ever had crappy stuff here in the States. Got to go. I mean, I could be, you know, I'm happy to be proven false, but I've not found a good supply. Uh, Josh wrote in, Nastasia, uh, I'm sure you are. Did you already read it or did you just pump it without reading it so that it would be fresh in your mind? Uh, this is a DM, so... I so you read it. it. All right. So, but then you, you gave it to me to read, so it's a DM, but it's not really private. Right. Okay. It's a DM. What? Yeah. Yeah. When are DMs private and when are they not private? I don't think that's a thing. It's not? No. <laughs> okay. Uh... It's just DMs, whatever. Okay, uh, this is, uh, from, uh, from Josh. Uh, Jess, my wife, made us go vegan for a bit. Made you, huh, Josh? Made you? You just went vegan because she wanted you to go vegan. She didn't force you, right, Stas? Or maybe she did. I don't know. What do you think about that? What do you think about the wording? Like, yeah, blaming I mean, it on the wife. Derogatory, no? Yeah, right? No. Yeah. I don't know. 
Uh, Jess, my wife, made us go vegan for a bit, and Indian cooking saved my sanity. Josh, what do you think about that, Nastasia? Yeah, I, th- I told him that's a good idea. I hadn't thought about I hadn't thought about that cuisine. Well, are you uh, are you reassessing your views on Indian cuisine in general? That spice mix because you're not a fan of in general American Indi- um, uh, like Ameri- Indian food in America. The the spice mixes that you normally get, you're not a big fan of, right? Right. Yeah, I don't like curry, but I would like to look at the recipes and maybe not add the the spices. You know. Well, I mean. To me, like that's just you, like that. My mind just went like, 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 the, like literally the last sentence you just said. And I, I understand what you're saying, but it was just like my head just went a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. What do you guys think? I actually don't under what what was that suggestion? Because like I hear I would like to make the Indian food, but without the spices. And what I heard was I don't want to make the Indian food. Oh, I didn't <laughs> want to say that, but that's exactly what I was thinking. Dis- yes. Discuss. <laughs> I mean, you know. All right, all right, all right, Matt. I'll, I'll just let that leave. There. I'll let that go. I love how, like, every once in a while, like, Matt goes hard in the paint. Anyway. This episode is brought to you by Ben to Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. For the past few months, Dave and I have been trying out Ben to Table subscription boxes, and I got the chance to sample some of the conservas they have available. Some of my favorite Ben to Table items were the squid in its own ink and the sardines in butter. And I wish that I had gotten the faro that Dave got in his box. <laughs> With New York and Connecticut stay-at-home orders in effect, it was really handy to have these pantry staples on hand. Another great thing about Benta Table is that they've been supporting independent businesses impacted by the pandemic. Many of the ingredients in their subscription boxes are made by companies that do a lot of business with restaurants and needed to quickly shift their supply chain and sell more product direct to consumer. When you set up a Benta Table subscription, you're supporting small independent producers and stocking your kitchen with delicious pantry ingredients. Go to bendatable.com to start your own monthly subscription. Use the discount code HRN to get $20 off a new subscription, and Bendatable will donate $10 to support cooking issues and all of HRN's programming. Serena writes in, Califia Farms Barista Blend is the best oat milk, in her opinion. It foams really, really nicely. Have you tried this one, Astasia? Yes. What do you think of it compared to the Oatly? No, I don't think it's I don't think it's close to Oatly, but it's fine. It foams. Foams. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What What's the difference in flavor? Having not tried that, I don't mean. I think Khalifa is a bit chalky. I think oat milk can be very chalky, and there's different chalkiness levels. Well, they and they oatly. add calcium carbonate to it, don't they? Which is in fact chalk. Let me see. <laughs> Let me uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll look at the. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll look at their at their ingredient list here. Uh, it's the one advantage of doing this stuff uh, from your home is that my computer exists. Let me see. Oat milk. Your iPad also exists in Brooklyn. Yeah, but there's no internet there. You know that. You know we don't have internet in the uh, in the studio. Uh, oat oat milk, sunflower oil, dipotassium phosphate, calcium carbonate. And try calcium phosphate. I wonder why they add the carbonate. It's going to adjust the pH a little bit, but it also probably makes it a little whiter. Hmm. Mm. I don't know. So there is, in fact, chalk in it. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I, uh, back to Serena. I still prefer dairy milk and coffee, but uh, 
that blend is a good tasty alternative. I find Oatly to be too thin tasting. What do you think about that? Yeah, I don't agree, but I what whatever she tastes, she tastes. Yeah. Also, Dave has gotten meaner in quarantine, at least on the radio, but got your back girl, Serena. Mm. Nice. Mm. We have one more, Matt. Michelle writes in, Nastasia, I've listened to the show for years. Tell Dave to stop picking on you. I'm a fan of the banter, but he's not being nice lately. Uh-oh. Michelle. Now listen, listen. Uh, as Nietzsche famously said, you cannot look around your own corner. So, I don't know, you guys discuss. I, you know, maybe, maybe it's because I'm not with Nastasia in person anymore. So, like, all of our frustrations get worked out, like, you know, on the radio. I don't know. No, I, I, I think that people enjoy the ribbing. I just think, well, based off this coming from two women, I feel like you can often mansplain things to me, like how I should feel about X, Y, or Z, or how I should think about, you know, what I'm doing or air conditioning or oat milk, whatever. And that's probably the rub, not the like, we can be really mean to each other, but it's it's the white mansplaining that I'm, I imagine women aren't crazy about. It's got yeah, well, call me on it's it. Then. Be that call me on it. Like, you've, I don't know. This isn't. You've not well, call me on it in real time so we can have the discussion. Then we'll do it. Okay. All right. I mean, like, I don't know. What do you? Wait, wait, wait. Like, yeah. I mean, because I don't sense any more or less mean so maybe yeah maybe not Stasi, maybe I think, uh, I think it's when I and I I know that women hate being called or hearing another woman be called crazy by a man and so when you're like you're crazy like that's mm. it's like immediately derogatory write you off yeah so it's, I, like, I a, doubt it's like a dog whistle word you're saying um like the word crazy is just like an instant it's just not great it's like yeah it's not great mm. All right, so what word can I use to describe what you know I'm talking about in terms of, like, the way that you and I both are? Uh, I, I, well, I don't th- – I think when you call me crazy, it's specific to I, – I don't know. I don't know, Dave. It's just not a good word. All right, well, help me figure out a new word. That's like we – I don't want to get into it because it's a family show, but we've switched years and years ago. I told you that there's certain, you know, if you're going to insult someone, I have preferred insults, right? We went through this many years ago. We can't get them on, on, on the air because they're all, I mean, I'm switching one bad word for another, put it that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? But yeah, yeah. like, uh, I, like, I don't. I don't like whatever. I don't want to get into it. I don't want to get into it. Switch the C word for the A word. No, I mean yes, obviously. No, but switch the B word for the A word. Oh. Like you, you know, you used to use that more, and I was like, please just call them an a hole. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think we should degender our insults as much as possible. Although there are certain words that it's hard for me to let go of because the alliteration is so good. The, the, the sea sucker word is an amazing <laughs> alliterative English word. You know what I'm saying? And so, and I know you love that word too, Nastasia. And so it's. Yeah, one time a cop, a cop cut me off on my bike and I said that word. And then I thought if he pulled me over, I would say I called him a cop sucker. Ah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, what? And with that, okay. Yep. <laughs> He's like, 
and that's better? He's like, I'm, it's just a little more confusing, but I still feel it's offensive. It's not, but he wouldn't like you. It's not a word in the lexicon that he can be, that I can be pulled over for, that I can like, you know. I'm pretty sure that like, if they want to F with you, they're going to F with yeah. you no matter what. You could probably say hello, and if they want to F with you, they will. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. Uh, you want a question from the chat? It has nothing to do with bad words. All right, does that have to do with baking, I hope? I hope, I hope. Uh, no. Does Adam want to, is this something that Adam wants to answer? This feels like a very you question. Uh, is it fast? Yeah. Here, I don't know. All right, do it, do how, it, how, it, how, it. how much convection do you naturally get from heated water without a circulator, i.e. a crock pot with a PID attachment? It depends on the temperature. I wouldn't trust it for, because the problem is, is that you're going to get movement of the, of the temperature, but it's going to stratify, especially once you add foods, you create dead zones. And so those dead zones are never going to really even out in temperature. So there's always going to be temperature stratification, even with the convection that you get in water. So like uh, measuring an empty pot of water is not a valid way to tell whether something is going to cook evenly or not. Uh, you know, filling something with foods uh, is valid. And so I would always say circulate those suckers or stir them. It doesn't take a whole boat ton, but it, uh, it's definitely uh, helpful. Now, if you're boiling something, hell yeah, boiling is, you know, convection on, on steroids. So that's going to go. So that's my, that's my take on it. Good enough. Is that good enough? Yeah. All right. Uh, let's get some user questions for uh, user listener questions for uh, Adam, and then uh, you know I'll go off on all my weak questions at the end. Although I will ask you this right away. So Red Fife is the darling uh, Red Spring Spring, right? Spring Adam. Yes. Yeah. So there's spring wheat and there's winter wheat, right? And the uh, like what they and you tell me why everyone says the Cadillac of bread yeast. Is the is the red spring? Why? Why spring and not and not the winter? Why is it the Cadillac? Um, I don't know. I never really heard that before. I think as far as like the East Coast is concerned, that grain has just done well. Um, there's certainly a lot of other options that can do even better, but I guess it's really um, flavor. It's got a lot of good immediate, like you can grasp the flavor. It tastes, for lack of a better term, weedy. <laughs> it just tastes like what you imagine grain to taste like um and you know i think that's a good start for people um i will say that the grain itself does you have to as from a farmer's perspective you have to replant and get new seeds every uh two generations or sorry every two seasons um otherwise it um starts to break down and no longer be useful for like bread making applications. You have to keep getting new seed every couple of years. So that's weird. Yeah. So my, my feeling was that we're in a situation, I baked a, a loaf with it, the same as I've been baking the Redeemer and the Warthog, you know, for red wheat stuff. Right. Yeah. And I was like, this tastes really good, but I'm not shooting myself in the foot to go get this wheat as opposed to the Warthog or the Redeemer. I'm not like, Oh my God, if I, if I don't have red fife again, I will never feel the same again. I thought it was good. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, are you with me on this or no? I am. That's why I was trying to kind of hint at it. It really just kind of tastes like weedy, very one dimensional yeah. kind of like, you know, if you were to compare it to just something store bought, certainly an improvement, but uh, it's not, um, not thrilling. Do you think this is another case where because it is an East Coast wheat, 
and grown by East Coast farmers that the East Coast food intelligentsia has pumped it up beyond what it necessarily maybe should be? Yeah, I think there's like um, different Italian or different Italian, different different food mafias um, for each part of the country, and I think the East Coast grain mafia is super into it. What do you think about the uh, the Rhode Island food mafia? You like that? I do. I love uh, Rhode Island um, fried. Uh, yeah. What, what about the Alsatian food mafia? That's like all the old school Alsatian chefs like Jean Georges and, and uh, Andre Soltner and all that. I love I love many food mafias, by the way. Love yeah. Them. I think they yeah. should have like a whole family get together, like you know the the five families of the food mafia. Yeah, I know, right? That'd be amazing. Like like uh, what was that? What was that? That gathering of the different mafias that got raided by the feds in like the fifties or sixties. That's in every every movie. You know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah. Like they analyze this or whatever, like the yeah, start yeah, yeah, of that yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah, it'd be amazing, amazing. Uh, all right, so uh, and we'll talk more about different wheats in a minute. Let's get to some questions. Mary Swanson wrote in, uh, I've been developing a sourdough starter, but how can I dial up the sour? The starter smells great, but the bread could be more sour. Um, well, that's uh, very easy because just negligence will help there. Um, I always try to go for the opposite not to um, criticize your desire for more sour, but I like the, the grain to come up more um, prominently. So I am always constantly feeding my starter and, and giving it new, um, new additions. So that way the, the pH um, goes up or goes down rather. Um, and the way to, to make it more sour is to starve it, to let everything um, that's so to go past its prime spot of fermentation. So when your flour and water mixture in your Levan has hit its peak, use it after its peak um, is one way. So when it starts to fall down? When it starts to fall down, add it then into your, into your dough. And then also um, higher temperature fermentation. So if you ferment, say, above 77 degrees Fahrenheit, you start getting into like 90 degrees, it'll get really sour. So higher temperature will do that. What um, about retarding in the fridge? Is that dial up or dial down the sour? Dial down, dial down the sour. So all out out of the fridge fermentation. If you want to be more sour, and then also you can uh, do a longer um, time. You could also do less of your Levan and let it go longer. So instead of say adding twenty percent Levan to your dough do 5% and then instead of letting it ferment for six hours in total, let it go for like nine or 10. And then it'll get really sour. I've noticed that when I pull my starter out, if I do just one feed, you know, like, uh, like I, 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 keep, I keep my starter in 150. So 50, 50, 50, 50 of starter, 50 water, 50 flour, right? So uh, if I do one feed and then wait for it, then to, to go up, then if I dope that, as you said, it's super sour because it hasn't fully beefed up yet. It's still kind of spent. It hasn't fully, like the yeast hasn't fully come back yet. But at that point right there, if I don't want it to be too sour, I actually dope it with a little bit of a, of a SAF red commercial yeast there. And then I can do that bake and then I can feed it once more. And then the next you know, the next day make a full sourdough loaf that has no commercial yeast. Do you think that's a terrible idea? I don't. I think that's a good idea. Um, that's kind of how 
um, a lot of bread making changed in Italy over the last um, couple of centuries is really making, basically you're making like pulich um, uh, when you're using a little bit of the, the, the store-bought yeast. Um, but it still has that same effect. You still have like a nice flavor, but that's a good way to do it. Do you want to talk about like how people maybe if once it's there's a line. So the, the thing people think about is they, they think about acid in bread or in general as being kind of a, a, a one like one direction only, whereas like a small amount of acid is actually beneficial from a dough structure standpoint. But then a little bit more acid and it suddenly goes slack and you lose all structure. Like uh, do you think people don't really think about. You know how like when something's too sour and you pick it up, it's like, and it has that weird feeling, you know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, definitely. So like, is there any way to like, are, at, once it's at that point, once it's gone so sour and she's lost all the structure in her loaf, are you, are you one of these people that will like put it out thin and dust a little bit of baking soda on it, roll it back up and pray? Or are you just like, you're just deal with the hand you've been dealt? Um, I, I, at this point, I, um, try to do everything to avoid that situation but um are you talking about it after it's baked like what what the bread looks like after it's baked um going through that process or no like you like let's say you throw it in the fridge and you uh, retard it or you leave it because you think you have a 20 you think you have like an 18 or 20 hour rise you come back and you smell it it obviously smells sour it tastes sour and when you poke it it has that slack feel of mm -hmm. of the acid killing the gluten and you know it's going to be a brick yeah. you know what i mean you, you know it's going to be a brick like do you just like like make three loaves out of that with a little commercial yeast or do you try to like fix it somehow? Um, usually there's no way to fix it. So I'll take a piece of it and use it as a biga and then make another bread. Um, so say you've got a one kilo dough that's just a little long in the tooth and you know it's not gonna make a great loaf. You can use that as your yeast culture for a bigger batch and then maybe you didn't, intend to have three loaves but you can freeze those and then it just kind of extends what you've got so i'll take like that something say it's over fermented and you know it's going to come out that great and then use it to make maybe three or four loaves um, and then freeze them right so like you know how like in the old school like in the 80s or whatever like some san francisco people who were going real sour they wanted that hyper sour flavor they would literally put some some soda in with their stuff yeah. in a risen bread so you hate that i don't yeah not for me i think of it um like coffee and the first and second and third waves of coffee um and since like the 90s or 80s and how when you go to italy or france or anywhere in europe that's had a longer coffee or espresso culture rather you know the sourness starts to go down in your flavor like enjoyment like I think that coffee tastes so good when it's like chocolatey or hazelnutty instead of just sour. And I think the American palate is still very new in some of these things as far as not as existence in the U.S., but as far as it being prevalent and being in every household. So sour coffee, sour bread, you know, kind of amped up umami bombs, the all that stuff, I think, will just continue to to even itself out over time. Uh, Matt Smith writes in, I live in Brazil with a very limited flour selection, maybe two brands, no bread flour, probably 10% protein max. Thought on adding a couple percent vital wheat gluten to improve texture. 
and then we had someone already write in, Robert saying in Rio, Robert Lack said he can find higher, higher gluten bread pizza flours imported from Italy in, uh, in Casas Pedro. Uh, and then someone else wrote in and said they have the same flour sourcing problem in Portugal. Um, and they use vital wheat gluten. I'm a fan of vital wheat gluten. What do you think? And then okay. they said, is there a limit on the percentage of gluten you should add? That, that was from As I Please. Well, the, the reality is that you can make bread with something at 8% protein, 8 or 9. Um, you know, you just are going to sacrifice or not sacrifice. You're going to have to have a different perception on what you want the bread to look like. So you may not have this massive uh, hole structure. You'll have a tighter crumb. But if you're in Brazil and you can find something that may have a lower protein content, but actually is, um, has some flavor, I would prefer to have the lower protein, um, tighter crumb with a lot of flavor. The wheat gluten um, isn't, you know, it's not harmful, but it, it does, you know, there, there's no reason to increase the gluten other than really aesthetics. If you want the bread to be like lighter looking. Um, in which well, case texture, I mean, people want that texture. Yeah. I would say then, then add it, go for it or, or get something imported. Um, the Portugal thing is interesting because Italy is right there. Um, also there's so many other places in Europe that grow, um, higher protein, uh, wheats if, if that's what they're looking for. Speaking of Portugal, what do you think of the cooked cornmeal broa style breads? I think that's so cool. I love them. I think they're great. Yeah. I haven't, if, for, for like, for like five years, I thought bro was going to become the next big thing and then disappeared. I haven't seen it in years. You? I haven't seen it either. Um, this, you just reminded me of it and, and how much I like it. Yeah. It's delicious. Yeah. Uh, anyway. All right. So, uh, so on gluten for a minute, uh, you know, I'm not above cheating, right? I, like you're more of a purist, right? I mean, you are interested in getting the itness out of, the grain, not just flavor, but texture and the whole, the whole Megillah, right? I mean, that's the, like, so for me, like using gluten and not, like I did 100% rye loaf the other day, uh, really finely ground rye, really, you know, put it through my 60 mesh and, yeah. uh, and I doped it with gluten. It was delicious. Nice. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, of course. You I know, think... full sourdough starter, gluten, delicious. I'm, I'm for everybody doing their own thing. I think just for, for my own personal philosophy, it's not even necessarily about being a purist, but about how exciting in the new world, if you want to call the Western Hemisphere, um, we still don't have extremely defined um, like food heritage because we've you know grew up in the Industrial Revolution, and if you want you know anything that you want, you can have. Um, but if we were to limit ourselves a little bit and not deprive ourselves of deprivation we could get some regional foods so i would love if new york was known for like rye and soft wheat and when you go to the east coast or the northeast and you're like oh the bread's like kind of like a more dense things and so they put more dense things on it and if you were out in the west and they were like big airy breads and lighter with you know lighter ingredients it would be cool if things took shape that way just by kind of going with what agriculturally makes sense. Um, and that's why I'm, a, I guess, a purist in that sense is that if you, if you start working with what is available around you, it just kind of works with the whole food system better. 
you're gonna hate this then i just i literally <laughs> right, right right before the radio i uh i did an einkorn uh an einkorn loaf and i know that you i know you love einkorn but i jacked that sucker with gluten too <laughs> you know what i'm saying like uh speaking of it when you have a denser bread counterintuitively takes longer to bake well maybe not counterintuitively i don't know what your intuition is people but it's like <laughs> it takes a lot longer to bake something that's denser than something that's bigger so it's not that um You'd think maybe that because the volume is bigger, it takes longer to get the, the heat into the center to bake it. But the exact opposite is true. Like, isn't that, don't you think it's a little counterintuitive, Adam? Well, I guess the water conductivity, right? Isn't that the, the way that the heat well, travels? The, the modernist cuisine people make an interesting point. Uh, the modernist bread uh, that I never really thought about is that, and this to me, in the whole book, this was the most kind of interesting revelation, is it's all one big hole that's an open cell foam. And so, yeah, the steam can like kind of rock it around on the inside and cook relatively quickly, which is, I think, kind of a cool, cool thing. Um, oh, uh, as I please said, is there a max? I wouldn't go over 10% on, on the vital wheat gluten. Uh, that's on something that has zero of its own gluten. I would not go above 10. Would you agree? If you were going to do it, you'd stay below, well, you'd stay well below 10, right, Adam? But you would never go above 10. Yeah, I don't think it's necessary. All right. Uh, Frank Mosca writes in, sourdough final shaping tips would be helpful. How do I achieve maximum rise and a good looking loaf? Um, well, it's not going to be related to the final shape. Um, that's the most important thing. It's like the Escoffier saying, like, um, good sauces come from good stocks. It's the same with beginning with your starter and then all the little steps along the way Final shaping certainly will have an effect on your final volume, but um, I would say if you had to put it in percentage-wise, it would contribute maybe 15% instead of uh, the 85 along the way, um, which is all the other processes of fermentation before you get into final shape. So, but do you think the final, the final shape, don't you think, though, it helps it stand up taller not be a bigger volume overall but it helps it stand taller by like stretching the theoretical gluten sheets around or no you don't well you don't... if um that that would be correct as long as every other step beforehand got you to that point because if you were to say um overwork the dough in the beginning and overwork is going to be relative as well but say it was a dough that needed eight minutes of uh kneading and you needed it for 10 um, because it's developed more strength. And as you're fermenting, it's developing more strength through fermentation and all the handling for pre-shape and maybe folds in between. You've put so much strength into the dough that it can't expand. So it's a, it's a balance between extendability and elasticity um, and which are two different things. And so, to achieve the extensibility and have you have to have elasticity. So that's going to be a flower choice and also a hydration choice and a, um, a technique choice. And then over the course of fermentation, um, you can create a scenario where the final shape would give you a, a, a bigger volume. But if any of those things are, any of the decisions along the way are, um, you know, they inhibit just general volume, then final shape won't contribute to it. So really the answer, I guess, for someone like him, what I think he's getting at is 
with all things considered, that fermentation is excellent along the way. Um, final shape uh, to get your maximum volume, um, you're going to need make sure that the temperature is higher than what your bulk fermentations were. So after you've shaped, you can shape so many different ways, even just look on YouTube, um, but just in addition to what you've chosen for a shape, um, make sure your temperature is about 10 or 15% warmer than what your bulk fermentation was, and then you'll really get some volume. Cool. Josh writes in and says, sifting. Has Adam experimented with the differences between only sifting with a coarse screen, like 24, that's real coarse, versus sifting with a 60 and adding back uh, an equal extraction percentage? Curious if sifting only out the larger brand helps with bread structure while keeping some of the flavorful bits. That's great. Yeah, tons, tons of experience with uh, sifting. Um, and I'm all about sifting because you can add it back in and any portion you want. You can add it back in in clever ways other than just putting it straight into the dough. Um, for example, I think sifting very fine, like on a 70, um, and getting a really nice powdery, uh, flour and then making bread maybe in a way that someone could possibly be more used to, and then using the bran to line the basket and have it go all on the outside of the, the bread is really cool look, you know, it gives it a darker color because the bran, um, caramelizes at a different temperature. Um, also I've taken the brand and used it, um, in the Levan, uh, which gives it a jump start, just natural yeast. It's living on the outside of the, the grain. Um, so sifting's great. Um, going super fine. You can, you know, you can pull off bigger flakes, uh, more coarse, um, really the finer you go, the easier the dough will be to work with. Um, and then you can think of interesting ways to put brand back in if your goal is to get 100% inclusion. Um, or you can use the brand for something else altogether. But it's a, it's a good thing. I've been doing almost exclusively 60. How much more of standard kind of bread internal structure am I going to get out of a 70 versus a 60 mesh? Not a whole lot more. Um, you'd notice it if you were trying to say make like pizza um, or if you're going to make puff pastry or something like that. Then it'll, the, the difference between 16 and 70 is pretty significant um, just because you'll, uh, you'll really see its ability to stretch really thin, which with bread, you're not really going that far. And by the way, people, 60 is the number of lines per inch, 70 is the lines per inch, which is different from the actual whole size. Meshes is a whole other subject, which we don't unfortunately have time to get into, but they're, they're really dumb. The way they're specced is dumb. Would you say it's dumb, Adam? <laughs> it's dumb. Done. Uh, Capri Sun writes in, starch damage, is it even worth worrying about as a home miller? Uh, and why did you not mention micronizer mills in your book? Uh, then, then this is a more technical question, but do, try to do it quick. Does Farabond heat up flour a bunch? Is damaged starch actually beneficial for some Italian uses? How coarse are the rustic old world style grinds mentioned in your book? Thanks. Um. Wait, hold on. You have to repeat a little bit of that. All right. How coarse are the rustic old world style grinds? Um, in your pretty book? coarse. Um, definitely much more than uh, how fine you can get with a home mill. Because you're talking about massive stones, usually moved by animals, um, by like donkeys and stuff like that, horses. Um, so certainly more coarse. There's a lot more room between the stones for grain to slip by. Why not mention of micronizers? 
um, wasn't necessary. Ooh. <laughs> well, you do actually mention them. You're like, these are the mills, buy a stone one. You're like, these are the mills, but buy a stone one. That's what you said, basically, yeah. right? Well, it yeah. was basically based on my hope to get people to mill. So the um, access to stone mills was easiest. Also, they produced the results of what I had worked with. So I figured if you were working with stone milling, if I was working with stone milling, we could maybe be speaking the same language. So to give the user the best possible chance to, to have success with the recipes that I work with. Yeah. By the way, when someone says they want to get on the same page with you, Nastasia and I like to say, but we're not even reading the same freaking book. Am I right, Stasi? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and lastly on that one, starch damage, worth worrying about as a home miller or not? Not. Okay. Paul Lee writes in, is it better, oh, you're going to, is it better to age your flour for a month or two after it's been milled? Years ago I was taught, and you're going to, this, I want you to go to ape, like in a short but ape, short but ape. Years ago I was taught that using green flour could give unpredictable or inconsistent results such as faster fermentation rate or bucky dough because of the higher enz enzyme activity. Go to town. All right, so um, I grew up in a world of uh, baking primarily that was, uh, I feel like the standard of everyone else in the last hundred years, you buy a bag of flour, follow a recipe, and you're always told that there's gonna be like differences, you know, and, and there's this baker myth and lure that every day is a little different, you know, it's more humid out or it's uh, colder today. and with the advancement of the products that I've grew up working with, I never saw the changes. And I really had to start to research what were these people talking about? It's like fresh compact yeast, 24 grams for a two kilo loaf or whatever is always the same. And whenever I got a flour that was a bread flour, it was always the same. Um, and what I realized is that people were talking about was fresh flour and then that's where the baker as a profession um, certainly had um, a lot more unpredictability um, to it and then that that's where a lot of the skill level came in where you weren't just dealing with an inert um, predictable ingredient so by not aging it by having it fresh you certainly have something that will be different every single time um, and then that's really speaking to the skill level um, not on whether you should or shouldn't do it you should do it because it has more flavor you should do it because it has more activity and it's more alive you shouldn't do it if you're trying to have the exact same result and not um, delve into training and delve into the craft um, so it's really a craft question versus a standardized question. So if you want to standardize something using flour that's fresh milled, if you're going to fresh mill it and then age it, you might as well just buy a product already and eliminate the milling um, because you've lost the benefit of it. You've lost the flavor and everything. So, um, you know, eliminate that part of your process and make it easier. Um, so if you're going to go through the trouble of milling, then you might as well get the benefits of it, which are flavor, that activity, um, but then pay attention to the craft differently. And I'm also going to say for the kind of people that I think are the kind of people that listen to this show, um, look, I, it, I like 
bread made with commercial flour because I think it tastes good. However, it does not taste the same as this stuff. And if you haven't had like stuff made from fresh flour, you are going to love it. Does that mean you won't still love bread made with commercial flour? No, but I will never use commercial whole wheat flour again. Like not ever. You know what I mean? Like I never will. Um, and, and I think it's a hundred percent like learning about how the grains work and like learning about like how milling works and the actual parts of it and the flavors and the stuff you can get is a hundred percent worth any cook delving into. Not that you're going to do it for the rest of your life, but I mean, I think it's a hundred percent valuable. No, I do. I agree. Kevin writes in, we're almost done. We're almost done. We're going to get all these goddamn questions. Kevin, what's the deal with sprouted grains? Are they healthier? Do they taste better? Different? They're uh, really cool. Um, there are different health effects. Um, not significant enough where you should sprout every grain. You can oversprout. You can undersprout. Um, that's how malt is made. You sprout the grain and then toast it. Um, and then you can extract it. So you can get sugar from it. You can make beer from it. Um, so many cool things about malting. Um, it's just like another layer and another um, effect to a desired target. So when you're designing something, you make targets, and this is a, a way to achieve certain goals. So it's up to you and what you like to eat. But uh, do, do they, is there too much amylase activity in that stuff? Do you have to kill it before you make the dough, or is you it do. fine? Yeah, no, you do. Yeah. Um, and you have to leave enough um, basically – available energy in the grain um, that's not going towards plant production so that way you can use it to make bread if everything goes to plant production then you're going to have a plant <laughs> and, and no, no flour so all right matt we're almost we're almost done matt joe anquist writes in i would like him to talk about feeding ratios for starters this is an important one what effect is feeding twice the volume of starter versus other ratios the whole process is new to me so I'm, really quickly can you hit both hydration level and percentage of starter to add when you're making the stuff Yes. Um, the higher the hydration of your starter, the faster and the easier that yeast can move on its highway. Um, while yeast travels through water uh, in, in your levan, in your starter. So the higher the hydration, the more open the lanes are for the yeast. The drier it is, the slower things will happen. Um, so it comes down to schedule. And uh, also flavor is affected on how quickly yeast um, is fed and, and is eating and digesting itself. So um, it comes down to flavor, timing, um, and then what you're trying to make. So with something that's lower hydration in your starter, you're now adding less water into your dough. So if you want to make, say, panettone, that's, that starter is usually 50% hydration because you're not looking at a lot of water because there's going to be a big addition of fat. Um, and then the emulsion um, starts to get tricky. So you need uh, maybe a little less water. Um, and then when you're going to make, say, just like a sourdough bread, you get the ability to add more water to your dough, and, and that'll make it seem more moist. Um, so fermentation time is increased by it being more wet. Um, and then also you're adding more water when you're adding your starter to your dough. So it uh, increases hydration not just to the starter but to the dough um and i hope that answers it i'm speaking of panettone last but not least uh, jared johnson wants to know where he can get a recipe for uh, bichola della valtellina um i think the alimo brothers have 
answer for that. If you look at Massimo Ilaimo and La Calandre, they have like a recipe bank online. They should have a, a recipe for that. I've never been to, I've never been that north in Italy. I've never been to Baltimore. Anyway, I hear it's really super pretty. So uh, I'm going to leave you with this. Adam, I know one of your favorite grains got, to make breads with, and I want you to talk about it. I'm going to tell you my experience in a sec, is the uh, Sonoran white wheat. And uh, what's interesting about this particular wheat is it's from the Sonoran Desert, Hayden Flour Mills. They charge a lot, don't they, Adam, these people? They really do. Yeah, they charge a lot. However, the interesting thing to me about this wheat is for years, uh, years, I would trash talk uh, flour tortillas. And a friend of mine's family is from New Mexico for like, they've been like 300 years. Like they, you know, like old school New Mexico, like old school Spanish speaking New Mexico. Their family's been there since before it was uh, English speaking. They've like been there forever. Anyway, he was like, you're being a jerk. Flour tortillas are kind of, they're, they're what we grew up on there. So it's not just like, like a white people thing showing up and making Tex-Mex stuff out of it. Right. And what I read was that uh, the, this uh, Sonoran white wheat is the wheat that caused the creation of the flour tortilla. And what's interesting about it, you were talking before about elasticity versus extensibility. It doesn't form gluten, but it has a high protein. So I just made last night flour tortillas with it, lard and uh, Sonoran white. And oh my God, were those good flour tortillas. Pretty nuts. And then just the inherent flavor of the Sonora is so good. It's got like, um, it's mellow, but there's like this, um, for lack of a better term, like creamy, um, creaminess to it that's really unique. It's really good. Well, when the water hits it, especially when I had the lard, it strangely almost took on a cereal milk smell to it. Like it had this kind of intoxicating smell to it, the dough yeah. did. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's not even that hard to, it's the hardest one to mill so far has been einkorn. That stuff's a pain to sift. Yeah. Is it super oil? Is it super oily? Why is it such a pain? Um, it's a pain because it's a really hard grain just in general. So when you're, when you're putting it through the mill, it's, you know, unless you have like a 10,000 pound mill, you're stressing that. And then also its ability to, um, absorb water, like its starch availability is lower um it's starch quality i guess you could call it is not as high as a lot of other things um so when you put it through the sifter it's almost like um like pebbly you know it's like a it's just yeah and it clogged my it was a pain yeah you know what i mean like but you know and the dough also felt weird now i told you i cheated i added gluten but it had a weird play-doh-y <laughs> yeah it was weird dude it yeah. was weird <laughs> I'll let, tell, you, tell you later how uh, how it tasted. By the way, Stas, true or false? You don't like panettone, correct? Uh, I do. I do like it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. What's the one that you hate then? What's the traditional Italian bread that you don't like? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking of someone else that doesn't like panettone. John, is it you that doesn't like panettone? I haven't had good panettone. I don't want to say I don't like it. I haven't liked what I've tasted. Uh, all right. All right, Adam, how about this? Uh, I know Matt's going to kill me, but how about this? Panettone on the way out. The giant panettones, just a gimmick, right? Um, it's not better being giant. Definitely a gimmick. Nah. But can you, how do you bake something that big? Because like, some of the big ones, they're like, they're like the size of a table. They're crazy. How, like, like, how, how does that even work? You, why did you do that? I know. It's, it's like the same reason why they do the giant mortadellas. 
in oh, uh, yeah. Bologna. They do like the thousand kilo ones and stuff that are just like huge. It's just for, they're usually for a sagra, for a food festival. Right. Um, that's what they're for. How much would Stas, how much would you love to put me on the meat slicer that could do one of those giant mortadellas and just be like, shunk, 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 shunk. That would be the worst, right? Like sitting there, like which, which way, which direction would you rather get fed into the giant mortadella meat slicer? Oh, head first. I don't even see you with a head in this situation. You go head first? No, I don't see you with a head in this situation. I oh, I'm already headless? Torso, yeah. Just the, to well, okay. Oh, oh my God. So you're saying... Put me, put my back against the slicing thing and go that way. Oh, Ooh. oh ouch. Gnarly. Man, that's rough. That's rough. <laughs> All right, last, 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 real last. Since I know oh that you also God. do meat, meat curing. <laughs> okay, so people, people. Vertical slicers are the original slice. The original machine slicer was developed by W.A. Uh, w. Van Burkel, and it's a vertical slicing machine. And the carriage that holds the meat pushes the meat across and you slice piece by piece as opposed to what we in the United States typically use is called a gravity fed slicer where it's on an angle. This is what you see at your local deli and gravity plus a little pusher thing pushes the meat into the blade. The problem is, is that as you push into the blade, the stuff near the bottom squeezes out and cause creates what's called a heel. The meat heals out. And every once in a while you need to rotate your meat or pull it out and trim that heel off because it doesn't trim evenly otherwise. Now, Vertical slicing, everyone says it's better, it doesn't smear the fat, blah, blah, slower, bigger. But is there a way to feed the most of the ham in? I had a vertical slicer once I used it. I was like, what am I going to do with the rest of this freaking ham? Because you need to have a whole bunch of stuff to hold on to to get a vertical slicer to, to work properly. Is there a workaround, Adam? Um, with the vertical slicer, well, there's a couple theories. Some, some people think that the stuff that can't go through the slicer is then to be used for other applications and not be sliced i.e. like a, a broth or something like that, or you just use for a different thing. Um, they do get tricky. Those Burkle slicers are pretty dangerous. Um, I, I don't have any other hack other than just to use those bits that you can't get into the slicer just for a different application. Yeah, yeah. Well, Nastasia is, Nastasia is at least kind enough to, to decapitate me before she puts me on the giant <laughs> Burkle. Well, Adam, thanks so much for coming. Enjoy having you on. Maybe we'll do another uh, bread session at some point in the future, you know, until you uh, get – and for people, write in. Adam wants to do bread car talk, bread talk. Uh, this time we didn't have people reading the questions, though. We, that's what we forgot to do, Nastasia. my favorite. I know. I know. Why did we forget? We're just done? We didn't forget. We, we just talked about it too late. Uh. But, yeah. And also it's really hard to get a gaggle of people to, like – do what we did last oh, time. Oh, yeah, because they're all complaining that they're, as they're working from home that they can't just uh, read, like, a 30-second question. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thanks for having yeah. me on. All righty. This has been Cooking Issues. Cooking Issues is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.